the first time you see your shoe that you created on someone's foot, whether it's on the train or on the bus or on the street, and they have no idea who the fuck you are, but you spent like nine months of your life just pouring everything you had into that. It is like you made someone else happy. You made someone else feel good. When you create that for someone else, it's like, fuck, damn, I did my job. That's what I'm setting out to do. And that's why I do what I do. Shoecast. Hi, hello, welcome to the Stitch Down Shoecast, where we talk quality footwear, how it's made, and all the things we love about it. I'm Ben from Stitchdown.com, and Ticho is unfortunately busy this week, opening his new exhibition entitled Moss. Many really close-up photos of the stuff at the Guggenheim. We're proud of him. Truly. Go get him, Teach. This week, we're talking with Greg Cordero, former footwear designer at Clarkson Timberland, former head of footwear design at Huckberry, co-founder of New England Outerwear, one of the great long-lost shoe brands of the last decade, and most recently, founder of Easy Mock, a hand-sewns and more brand that is straight kind of blowing up right now and is going at it all in a way we love, manufacturing the bulk of their core product, basically a little hand-sewn moccasin construction mule slip-on in the U.S. hand-sewn capital of Lewiston, Maine. So very psyched to chat with Greg about all the areas of the industry that he's been in, his outlook on U.S. manufacturing. But before we roll out, Greg, I just need to give a special ShoeCast shout out to our sponsor this week, Grant Stone. I've been cheating on my Thunderdome boots with their reverse snuff kudu field boot, which is just a glorious, beautiful chonker of a boot indeed. Also, their new women's line has just been launched with their Goodyear welted Nora boot, a development we absolutely love. Check it all out at grantstoneshoes.com. And if you enjoy this podcast, even just a little tiny bit, you'll surely revel in the Stitchdown Discord, the hub of the Stitchdown Premium community. We do tend to talk about boots and shoes and leather and sizing and MTO ideas and just hot, hot shoe world gossip. But the only way to verify that is to check it out for yourself. And of course, your incredibly reasonable membership fee does oh so much to support this very shoe cast you're listening to right now. Think about it. Think about it. More info on the Discord and SDP on stitchdown.com. All right, let's do this. Greg Cordero of EasyMock, welcome to the ShoeCast. How's everything up north? And what, my friend, may I ask, are you wearing on your feet today? Everything is good up here. It's starting to get cold because it's October and that's what happens in New England. And actually today, funny enough, I wore an old pair of Abington boots that were made by Timberland. It was a sideline project that was worked on for a few years by some friends of mine. And they did them in a number of leathers and colors. They used Chrome XL, you know, all of your favorite leathers. And yeah, I wore those today because it was raining and I needed something waterproof. And they are Gore-Tex and they're honestly still to this day after I would say 12 years in my top five favorite pair of boots I've ever had. They're pretty sweet. Unfortunately, they don't make them anymore. So I had a pair. I feel like they were way ahead of their time in terms of heritage revival stuff. Like they just mistimed it. Yeah, it was more directed towards heritage, but a little bit like contemporary heritage. So taking cues from true hikers and true work boots and putting a little bit of a contemporary spin on it and selling to more contemporary doors and boutiques. So I still have them. They were Gore-Tex. You can't make a Gore-Tex shoe in the US. So I'm curious to know, do you have a waterproof boot yourself or a few of them that are like true Gore-Tex or a version of it? And what are your favorites? I have one pair. Actually, no, I have two. And they're both essentially hiking boots. One is a Danner Light, not the Mountain Light, but Danner Light, which I got because a bunch of cool Japanese guys had it. And 
you know, just trying to keep up. And it's great. I've had it for, God, longest time. I got it as a dog walking boot like seven years ago, maybe. Desperate need of a resole. I still bust it out when it's like really wet, used it in the snow. Fantastic boot, looks cool. And then I have a pair of Zamberlin mountaineering boots, which are just completely impenetrable. And they have Gore-Tex, but even if they didn't, I don't think anything could get through all the layers of leather and padding. And So yeah, those are like, I call my Suramen Hillary boots, and they live up to it. Are the Danners Gore-Tex? Because they have their made-in-U.S. line that are waterproof. So then they might be the only people in the U.S. that do Gore-Tex waterproof. Yeah, and I mean, they're doing a lot of it, so like the expenses seem to make sense. But yeah, I mean, these are old. You know, Danner still makes plenty of stuff here. I think like the Mountain Light stuff is maybe exclusively still made in the U.S. And this is obviously a different boot, but I'm I'm pretty sure it was. It's got a U.S. flag on it. They definitely have that made in the U.S. collection. I don't, I don't, to be honest with you, I don't know. They're one brand that I've always admired that I don't know a ton about. Maybe it's me ignorantly being from the East Coast and not doing as much research into West Coast brands. Do you want to talk about Easy Mock? Yeah, let's do that. Sorry. <laughs> <laughs> See, I told you. I told you we would. this would we happen. We don't have to. <laughs> Dude, things are going nuts. Like, you and I, we've been in touch for a while. I love our rangy chats. And I feel like maybe that's been a couple of years, maybe even less. And since we got to know each other, things are just, like, going a little bonkers, right? The kind of people and brands and shops and everything that want easy mock and think their customers want it too like it's completely all over the place it's everything from nordstrom to nepenthes which conveniently both have n at the beginning of their names to make it sound cool people like this thing the core product how's that feel like you got a hit i hope so i think so i appreciate that and that's nice of you it's funny because that shoe was something that i had created and dan and i had created the you know original founder he and i with Yelling on outerwear, which you can talk about in a little while, but it was something that we had come up with a long time ago. I would say it was probably like 2014, honestly, or it was somewhere only a year or two into founding New England Outerwear because he had always been a massive fan of Birkenstock. Everything is cyclical, fashion, things come around. We are all influenced by Japanese culture, at least in America, and we re-influence them. And it's a very interesting thing, especially in luxury and high-end goods and sort of being adjacent to streetwear and luxury. We're looking at what a lot of Japanese guys that we knew were, were wearing and what people cared about. It has been Birkenstock for honestly, like at least a decade or more. Burke Boston's. I'm back on the scene. I didn't have a pair of Birkenstocks for 20 years, and I got a pair of Burke Boston's two years ago. Around the house, I live in them and the Easy Mocks. Honestly, the original inspiration for Easy Mock was there's not an American-made Birkenstock with its own characteristics and its own point of view. And it wasn't to knock off Birkenstock directly because I didn't want to do that. That's very German and European and it has a big chunky and fat last. And it's a very specific item. It's an icon. And you can't knock off an icon And so in the reinterpretation of what a product like that would mean to a U.S. consumer and being made in the U.S. led to the Easy Mock. And it initially was the buckle version that started because being high on the Birkenstock Boston, we're like, we got to put a buckle on it because that's a step in. And then what sold more for us was the lace because I think that's a little bit more American, a little bit more preppy inspired. It feels more like a camp mock. And that's just kind of what hit. And chopping the back off of it while still remaining hand-sewn, I think is a very unique thing. I feel really lucky because, like I said, it was a reinterpretation of something that means a lot to a lot of people in a lot of different ways. And I always tell people, to me, Easy Mock is democratic. I try and be as open 
and allow as many types of consumers into the brand as possible. Like you say, Nordstrom to Nepenthes, there is a preppy guy consumer who's, you know, your finance bro who wears a pair of boat shoes and loafers every day. And that's his thing. And that's great because he's never going to go away. And then there are your high end sort of fashion guys who are wearing Gucci loafers and your bit loafers and a moccasin loafer. If you pull back a lot of the detail, casts a very wide net and a broad audience. And to me, it was being approachable as a brand, sticking to the ethos of what I personally care about, which is well-made footwear and making it as attainable as possible, both in style and in cost. Um, And obviously in America for me has always been the biggest thing. Honestly, it's because I'm a little bit lazy. It's easier to make things (laughs) here, which I'm kidding. It's really not, but um, (laughs) (laughs) you don't have to drive as far though. But yeah, that's sort of where Easy Mock spawned. It spawned from a new, it was a New England outerwear shoe. It was called the Lazy Mock, right? Yep. And the Lazy Mock did pretty well, kind of chugged along for us. It was never a hit then. I think part of the problem with New England Outerwear that we had, we were pretty successful. Like when I left, we were doing very well. As a designer myself, I get so excited. I have too many ideas. It's stupid because we would try and make every single thing we thought of. Dan, we would be like, oh, let's do this. Let's do this. Let's do this. It was like a kid in a candy store. And uh, when you have those resources at your hands, it can get out of control really quickly. And that's sort of what happened, I think, with New England Outerwear. You know, if I could open the website today and look at what we had, we probably had like close to 50 SKUs on there, which is crazy for a small brand. It was just too much. With Easy Mock honing in on one thing that's done really well and, and just continuing to hammer it home and knowing that there is some meaning behind it was my intent. And I launched that with Huckberry because they were our biggest customer just for that shoe. So we sold them that shoe and they did really well with it for a few seasons. When I jumped over to Huckberry to do some design work for them in the last few years, Somebody had brought up like, why don't we bring that thing back that you did, Greg? The thing that did well for us. And I was like, well, it did well for a few reasons. I think the product itself is right. There's also was a story behind it, blah, blah, blah. And a few guys were into it. A few guys weren't. And I was like, you know what? Fuck it. My guys have been calling me. I'm going to reopen the factory. And that's sort of where it went. And I was like, you know what? I'll just make a sample and I'll show you guys. And if you want to buy it, you can buy it. And sure enough, I made a sample separate outside of being a designer for Huckberry. I just reeled my factory myself. And the buyer was super into it. And he's like, we got to do this. And sure enough, they blow out of the thing your head been and doing really well with it but that initial one on the lace it did well and that helped me sort of get out there I mean Huckberry is an amazing platform to put product on because those guys know how to market and they also have a very huge audience and they have a really great assortment of product a really good stuff that they know how to tell a story with and get people to understand what they're buying and why they're buying it and for me I think that was a catalyst to getting my story back out there and a little, little fire under my ass and be like, you know what? I can do this. But yeah, it just kind of spawned from there. So it's been good. It's been good. Probably going all the way back. And then you know, there's like a midpoint where Easy Mock arises. And I'm pretty sure it's at least a little different from the original, but going all the way back, what was that development process like? I mean, it's got to be tricky because they don't have a back and something for your heel to truly grab onto. Where did things go wrong? What got thrown out along the way? How'd you fix it? It's a tricky shoe to make, man. Yeah, it's not an easy shoe to make. It looks simple, but it actually took us a lot of iterations of that shoe to get made. And I do, and I told you this before, at one point I had reached out to Brett Viberg to get his opinion. He liked it and he loved the idea. That for me was an affirmation. When someone like Brett gives you a head nod, you're like, all right, fuck it, this is right. I think getting that affirmation from a few different people pushed us to get it right. And 
Yeah, it was a pain in the ass, honestly. With the construction of hand sewing, obviously, the vamp wraps up around the last and you close it with the toe, which is called the plug. And then in a genuine hand sewn, it's not pre-punched. So it's all by eye with an awl and a needle. And it's there's no marking. There's no pre-marking. There's no punching. There's nothing. And the same goes for the toe and then what's called the kicker. The kicker, if you look at the back of a boat shoe, is that little pinch. It looks like a pair of lips on the back of a shoe. The reason that's there is because it closes everything in the heel with a hand sewn. Because when you wrap up and tack the leather around the last, it obviously bunches in a lot of ways. It doesn't come together easily. The leather's going to act a little different, whether it's a belly cut or a back cut, or it's Chrome XL versus a suede. So you leave enough of play for the hand sewer to be able to trim and get it right and sort of set it up right on the last. That was actually a real issue, getting that location right. When I had started Easy Mock, I tightened up the pattern a lot more because we got the pattern right to a point where we felt good. We did it on what's called the 100 last, which is an old Sebago last from, I got to say the 60s or 70s. It's a little bit wider. It's bulkier. It was closer to the inspiration of what a Birkenstock was by no means that bulbous asymmetrical toe that a Birkenstock has, but it was a chunkier boot last and it kind of fit a little sloppy. You know, there was too much give. And when you have a dead fitting shoe, dead fitting shoes are the hardest, by the way, to make and fit. And they take a lot of time, especially even in grading. We got it to a point where it was right, but I knew that there were issues with it in relaunching it. So I scrapped the old pattern and started on a new last. I have my Easy Mock last. I changed a few things about this last. So that, for one, started off in a better fit. Wait, so those lasts are a little higher sidewall specifically to facilitate the construction then, huh? Yeah, yeah. Typically a, a hand sewing last has a much higher sidewall in the toe, in the vamp area, because you have to be able to wrap that leather fully up and around to meet it. When you're coming around the feather edge of the last and you go up and around the toe, there's a lot of bunching that occurs. Good hand sewing, really beautiful loafers, there's no wrinkling, there's nothing. To get that pure, consistent, no wrinkle look, your higher sidewall last is going to allow the hand sewer to wrap up a little bit, give them room to trim where they need to trim, and give them just more room to sew and rest their hands on and build the shoe around. It's not to say you couldn't do it on a lower profile last, but look at most true American-made loafers and, and moccasins. They're all pretty substantial. From a side profile perspective, looking at the toe, that's initially the reason because it's an easier thing to build around and sew. So I actually slimmed it down a touch adjusted that profile to fit better, and then went ahead and reworked the pattern and regraded everything. I do a little bit of pattern work myself, but I'm not amazing. So I much rather trust my guys that have been making them for, you know, 60 years a piece. But I knew aesthetically what we wanted to get. So we landed on the Easy Mock where it is today. And I tell people it's more of a preferential fit because a lot of people don't really wear mules. I think people are just getting into mules still. And a mule can slap on your heel like a flip-flop. Or a mule can be dead fit and lock you in and you don't have that at all. And the Easy Mock is the same way. I prefer mine half a size down, sometimes full size because I go barefoot. And obviously if it's Chrome XL or suede, you're going to have a lot of stretch and it's going to be a lot of break into the leather. But then if you're someone who will wear socks with it, who's okay with it being a little bit more loosey-goosey and you're just like slapping them on to take the dog for a walk and go to the trash and it's a, just a casual thing, go for true to size and it's more of a flip-flop mule fit where you just kind of banging around in them, which is also cool too. I will say I have to acknowledge that with the engineered garments in the Penthes one, 
we got it even tighter. And that was at the request of Daiki Suzuki himself, which is cool because he's like, you know, the workwear god of the industry. Everyone respects and admires. I, you know, he's amazing, right? He wanted it to be even lower. The ideal would be a Birkenstock where you don't have that kicker. You have nothing in the back, but then you think you'd lose the character to what it is now. And I kind of am happy that we were forced by construction to have the little mini kicker in the back, but he wanted to take it even lower, as low as we possibly could. So if you actually take a pair of the EG Nepenthes bit loafers or any of my bit loafers, because that's a pattern that I had dyes made on and that's that compared to my current easy mock, I would say half inch, 10, 15 millimeters lower in the heel if you took them back to back. And that is at the request of Daiki and I kind of prefer it myself. Um, and now I'm like, I've been like, oh no, should we readjust the pattern for the easy mock and go lower? But it's done so well now and people are fitted, but I'm just leaving it alone because I think both have their moment. But that's kind of where it happened. And yeah, it was a lot of back and forth. There was a lot of pattern trials and I'm lucky I'm a size nine. So that's a true sample size in most footwear. I don't know what the other guys in like the more handmade shoe realm do you know i don't know if edward green is out here making size nine samples you know <laughs> with smaller brands it just depends on the size of the person who's running the brand <laughs> in my experience from my larger industry experience i'm just like pushed into doing size nine for men and size seven for women so i'm lucky that i'm the normal sample size of what most brands do and I fit it myself a few times and my right foot is a true nine you know no high instep none of that kind of stuff so that's uh, also been a benefit to me when I've wear tested my other designs at other companies because I'm able to help myself and other designers out that want to fit something so and all the easy mock products we'll get to some of the other stuff in a minute it's made in Lewiston Maine all of the true easy mock stuff is now my plan with the brand selfishly for production because of me as like the designer and wanting to create things i'm making things in other factories around the world because having had these other experiences at other companies you quickly find that we are a very small bubble and so for me the thing with easy mock in the factory is I want to stay true to who we are and what we do. You know, do one thing and do it really well. And we do hand sewns. And right now I don't do welts. There's potentially for the future. I would love to do Goodyear welts and do some stuff here, which is a large potential for us. But for now, I'm focusing on doing a true hand sewn moccasin construction. That is what we do and we do it well. And until the time that I can do a welt or I can do anything else here, whether it's string lasting or something crazy, I'm going to focus on that. And where I can go to the other factories that I've been able to see and meet around the world where they have amazing people and talent, I will go to the best places that I know of that exist that can do that. And so you brought up my the new product that I have on there, the Rockland, that 3 eye Bochu, and then the Chelsea boots are Goodyear welted. That was a factory that I met when I was in my travels. The family who started this has been been one of the biggest producers of footwear and a few other things in India for years. The father is amazing. A guy is just like a crazy businessman, super smart, wonderful person. But for me, it's like meeting factories like that where these guys go into that community. They employ so many people. They help house these people. They give them health care. When I was there one time, they were doing like a community eye exams for them and giving free glasses to anybody. Didn't even have to work for the factory. They just lived in the town and they supported their local people. And so... I found that pretty cool. And the more I got to know these guys, they're the type of guys that literally will invite you into their home and make you dinner. And the biggest part for me, obviously, was going to the factory and you can eat off the floor. 
The welted line is stunning. I was like, if I'm going to do welts, I'm going to do it here. And there's plenty of amazing welted factories everywhere else in the world. It was just that I had this connection to these guys. And it's not about price. It's not about ease of getting it. Because trust me, there are amazing factories. And it's a pain in the ass, actually. Jumping through logistical hoops and paying duties and importing stuff is not an easy task at all, by any means. You have your whole other set of bullshit things you have to deal with than the bullshit you have to deal with making things in the U.S. You know, it's just a different type of evil. It's not a lesser evil, it's a different evil. And so I'm not choosing to do that, like I said, selfishly, other than I love that factory and they, I can't wait to send you a pair because I think you'll truly understand the minute you put your foot in these things. They're not like any other welt I've ever worn. I had worked with them in the past, admittedly, when I was at Clark's to develop this soft welt, a flexible welt, which... The construction changes a few different things. They'd probably be mad at me if I really told you how, but I will say that the traditional cork filler is replaced by a few other things. The steel shank and tuck are still there, but there are some other options that you have, and they're just out of the box comfortable. Most welts, a lot of welts, you expect, and especially us as like shoe guys, you're like, man, this is going to suck for the first month. And my fucking toes are going to be bleeding. <laughs> and, but it's not the case with these. And that was intentional. It really was. They're heavy and they're well built. And I'm excited to get them out to the world. We have some good customers that I'll be shipping them to. They'll be in Europe. I don't know if you have any UK listeners, but I took them to Paris with me at this past show. And I got a few really great retailers there. End is going to be the biggest, which I'm excited to announce that I'll be selling Easy Mock to End. So that's pretty cool. And then there's a few other smaller guys. You know, Iron Shop Provisions in Louisiana has been really good to me. Uh, he's a great guy. He'll be getting some stuff there and there's a few other friends that are going to be picking them up but i'm biased you know but i'm very happy with how they came out they look good obviously it's a departure they have like backs to them for me they're right in the sweet spot man it's classic hand-sewn look they're just raw chunk giant commando soles and the wedge which i'm glad tito's not here because he hates wedges and he's wrong and I think that you're doing a lot to prove that. But, like, they have a very distinct feel to them. And it's like the Easy Mock is descended from classic hand zones and then obviously takes its own little left turn. And these, you know, kind of appear to be them, even though they're not, in terms of patterning and, and the details. And actually, here's a question. What's that little leather rope that rolls through, like, a boat shoe? Is there a name for that? Because I've asked a bunch of people, including on this podcast. and Yes, the leather rope that rolls through a boat shoe, you mean around the collar. That is called the 360 degree lace. And the whole point of that lace is because if you are on a boat and you're in a boat shoe and things get a little hairy and you need to be tighter, a true 360 degree lace wraps all the way around and you can cinch everything together around your ankle and your Achilles. But the initial intent of it having in a boat shoe was that it, it stopped water from going in your shoe from splashing in because you would suction your collar so tight to your ankle that it would actually prevent water from getting down in there. And you could also probably stuff, you know, a gator or something in there if you had to, and it would cinch. It was an old school way to cinch because before there were toggles or anything, you had leather laces or you had regular laces and you just pull, jack that shit tight. We've done it. Mm -hmm. That's it. You cinch them down and bust out the whomper. None of them actually do it anymore. I'm sure. <laughs> no, most don't. I mean, the main ones do, you know, we do. I've had some old Sperry's that definitely did that. Easy Mock actually does. My lace on the Easy Mock goes all the way through the collar and out the other side. It's one lace. 
I'm glad that you said that. It makes me feel good because my design intent and my intent in general from a brand perspective, I am inspired by heritage and love well-made product and traditional construction. But what is the contemporary approach on that with paying homage and respect to what true construction and the best construction is, but also taking a, a little bit more of a contemporary spin from a brand and from what it means to be relevant because there's nothing new under the sun, right? But there is a way to advance something that you've done while still giving respect to the past. And that's kind of what I want to do in every single shoe that I release. I think you would hopefully see where I'm coming from in the initial intent. And I th- obviously there are some silhouettes that without saying, I think the three I bought you is one of them. Also, it's very trend, right? A lot of guys wear them now. You know, you look at fucking Amelie on door or however you say it. <laughs> Sounds close. There's a million versions of what that shoe represents and for different reasons. I mean, these have, you know, not to take anything away from everything you just said about finding your own way. But yeah, there's a little bit of like, all right, pair of boot, let's just do it. And it's not just the sole, right? It's not just, okay, here's a shoe, because I'm a little obsessed with, like, big shoes and and boots and just how they can be fun. And a big part of the story I wrote on, like, chonk and dress chonk, which is happening more and more, and, like, I just got these J.M. Weston triple sole loafers, and they'll never flex, but they're still incredible. (laughs) I definitely wear them to wash the dishes at this point, just getting them loose is that you can't just take your old shoe and put a commando sole on it. It has to be something different that translates throughout the entire shoe, the last, the pattern, the detailing, the everything. And it needs to be pre-designed to be big and proud about it. And it's pretty cool because they're like quite the opposite of the Easy Mock, which is like, let's just pare this thing all the way down. And then the Penthes ones, which I have been looking at here, like, yeah, it's definitely lower. And the, the fact that you're making that work for people's feet is pretty cool. Like, I love hand sewns, man. I wear them all the time. And there's something about Goodyear welted shoe or like other kind of all leather construction shoes in that vein, you know, stitch down, nail down, whatever, that there's this solidity to them that you become quite acquainted with and accustomed to that really nothing else can deliver. And it's like, yeah, you know, I'll wear some Ranger mocks in the summer. I'll wear some easy mocks, whatever. But when you really want to go out and do something, once you get into that, you're kind of stuck almost. Like the other one's a great alternative for other activities. The look itself of classic hand-sewn patterning and all that can translate to pretty much anything. Not everybody really does it, right? Like it's kind of stuck in a certain little world that like you don't really want to go for a hike in them. Again, it stemmed from a few things. One being the accessibility I had to a factory that made welted product that I really, really loved. And two being that I do have a lot of customers that are like, I love your easy mock, but I can't wear a low back. Can you make it with a full back? And I can, I have classic camp mocks and I don't want to pull away from what the intent of the easy mock was, was to sort of take a little bit of a degree, a dial turn away, you know, and give hand sewns a new life. And so taking classic product like a three eye boat shoe or a two eye boat shoe, I wanted to do the same thing and offer a full back for the guy that is looking for that. 
and yeah, you touched on it exactly that. There's a lot of details that I focus on with that shoe. The last is quite a bit different. It's not your typical Timberland 3i boat shoe. The collar is probably 5, 10 millimeters more narrow. I have the 360 lace. It's actually a flat lace as opposed to full square, so it's a little bit more refined. The eyelets are proper rounded eyelets as opposed to doing your bevel or Timberland has the hex eyelets. There's just a few different details that I thought about, but it does have your chonky... Vibram Commando, so which actually it, that's opposite. It's, Vibram doesn't call it Commando. Vibram is the Montaigne or the Rachia. I never knew how to say it. It's I T S. It's T Day. It's Hyde. I don't know how to say it. Never knew how to say it. It's Tide. It's Tide. It's Tide. It's Hyde. I say everything wrong. I'm like my father who can't say Chipotle. He calls California, California. I'm like, dad, what is that? I'm like slowly becoming that guy. So forgive me. It's, it's, it's a, it's hide. I don't know. I don't know. Anyway, that's the commando. <laughs> but yeah, the Vibram Montaigne is what's on there. I understand why some folks don't love a good outside heel, a breasted heel, because it does lend itself to be a little bit more feminine unless you go like a full lineman style heel. And then it's like, all right, this is a shit kicker. But then you have a lot of people who are totally fine, have no qualms with an outside heel. I love a breasted heel myself, an outside heel, because I think it gives a lot more beef and chunk. And you can also control the sort of rake, the last that stance on a shoe. I went to industrial design school. One of the things I originally, I wanted to be a car designer and I was never good at drawing. My buddy, one of my, one of my best friends, Josh, who now is helping his teamed up and will hopefully be running my shop soon is a big car guy. And he talks a lot about rake and stance design. There are these sort of intrinsic things that you don't talk about that you look at that are what draw people in a, aesthetically to an object and certain things. And for me, you know, there is this weird comparison from cars to, to footwear because they're all standalone objects that kind of are a moment when you look at them you're like whoa even if you're not a shoe person and you, you can come across a pair of shoes and you're like damn that thing fucking looks good you know somebody folded it right it has a mean stance i love a breasted heel because it allows you to control your heel height give it a little bit more attitude you can fuck with your last in what's called RCF, which allows you to get the balance and the tread right, but also really give the shoe an emotion and an aesthetic feel without people really knowing. I think sometimes you look at things and you're just like, all right, it's cool. But then when you actually go back, you're like, well, why do I immediately think that's cool? The underlying reason why, yeah. And for me, you know, obviously with a true wedge, you know, a Christie or, or, or one of those like, soles, you can do that. You can do it in the same way, but... There's a little bit more drama to having that outside breasted heel and having that hard notch and really just calling out that this thing is sitting up a bit higher. It means business on a boot specifically. It's kind of nice. And then, you know, it just gives you a little bit more opportunity to play around. Like you can pop that fucking thing off and you can put leather on it. You can put a, a cat's paw heel on it. You can put a dovetail heel on it. You can switch it out and try a few different things. You can mess with the RCF and in, in, in sort of stance of the last and then go for a stack of leather that's stained a different color. It's just a nice, fun, appealing thing that you can play around with. I kept it pretty simple with this one, I think, but honestly, my personal pair, when I'm not wearing regular Easy Mocks, which is, you know, around my house or in my studio or whatever, I wear the three-eyed boat shoe because I'm, I'm a short guy. You know, I'm a short, I'm what they call short king, so to speak, is what the Gen Z guys call it. Uh, <laughs> I'm I'm five foot seven on a good day. I'm really five foot like six and a half. And that bad bitch puts me up at like five eight and I can fight someone. You know, I'm like, what? I'm ready to start shit. So that's also my my reason. 
I'm so glad we're doing this over the internet. <laughs> Not in the same room as you. You got a little fire inside you. Mm, mm-hmm. I'm a lover though. But yeah. <laughs> so that's that. All right, look, let's uh let's cool out a little bit, Greg. Let's cool out. Let's take a quick break. We'll be right back with Greg Cordero of Easy Mock. So Ticho, as you know. Grant Stone continues to offer pretty much the best value available anywhere in Horween, Shell Cordovan, Boots and Shoes. That's true, right? That sounds true. Yeah, I agree with that. I don't think anybody's got them beat. There may be one more pre-order in 2022, and you can expect to see, you know, four, one a quarter in 2023. I asked Wyatt. I was like, well, what What do you got cooking? Dark cognac? Mm. The honey glazed natural shell, which always looks beautiful. Yeah. And that ruby red garnet. Oh, yeah. Garnet? Garnet. I think it's named after Kevin Garnett, I believe. Oh, it is. Kevin Garnett. Yep. You think this is a good thing? You think they should keep doing this? Oh, absolutely, man. The one that recently that they had that really got me was the Garnet Traveler Loafers. Oh, yeah. I was like, man, you know, I already have the suede ones. I love the suede ones. I wear them all the time. What's well, like the other great loafer leather is Shell Cordovan. Like, those are the two. If you're going to have two, that's what you need. You need suede. You need Shell. You know, it just was really tempting. And it almost uh, it almost got me. And I was like, I just, I just couldn't do it. But knowing that there's more coming is very, very good news to me because I'll, I'll, I'll probably have to pull the trigger on that next time. I don't think I could resist it again. That would be tough. That was the first time they ran those, so I wouldn't be totally surprised to see them again. And I've seen Wyatt's sample pair in person, and they're just, oh, my God. And that dude wears loafers just doing it, and they looked absolutely perfect. Not knowing what the makeups are going to be next year. And we're not saying this is going to happen, but if you, you, T. Joe could dream up any Grant Stone makeup in a shell color that they've run before. And let's let's use these three. What would it be? This is kind of a bad answer because they offer this and have offered this, but the, the honey shell Edward is always a hit for me. It's perfect. It's so clean. It just really shows off the shell exactly the way you want it to. Beautiful rolls on that plain toe. The smaller eyelets for a little bit more of kind of a refined look on it. It's just like you could wear that boot anywhere. That's a great one. Blank vamp and shell, man. That's the ticket. All right, I got one. Garnet long wings, double leather sole, Ooh. natural edge, and you just beat the heck out of them as quickly as you can. Oh, yeah. This is like wild, wild thinking here, but. Is that happening? That might get me too, man. I mean, I just made that up. I, there's basically no chance that they make that shoe. But if they do. <laughs> I thought you were subtly breaking news here. I guess we'll find out. We'll find out if White listens. Uh, to his own ads. Big year coming up for Grantstone Shell. As always, be sure to sign up for their newsletter at grantstoneshoes.com to get the drop on it. Tough to go wrong. I might need to get some long wings now too, man. Dang. <laughs> You're killing me here. Back to the shoe guys. All right, we're back with Greg. So we hit on a lot of Easy Mock stuff and got a little bit into previous stops. We talked about Timberland. We haven't really talked about Clark's at all. You were there. You were in the room. You were drawn shoes, which is surely a drastic understatement of what that work is like. What is it like? Like, what is it like to design shoes and work at those places compared to, like, what you're doing or, you know, a lot of the smaller boutiquier or even, you know, kind of forces of nature that are still making fractions of what those brands are that that we talk a lot about on this podcast. How's it different? What's the day-to-day? Did you dig it? <laughs> it's drastically different. So my first job was Puma as an intern. 
Then I jumped up to Timberland and I was there for three and a half, four years ish. Then that's when I started New England Outerwear, where I did that for probably four to five ish years and then jumped to Clark's uh, around 2016, left Clark's right before COVID. So that's my sort of whole brand experience. Within that, obviously, I did a lot of other things to sort of pay the bills. So it is very different. And I can say it from having experience at different levels at different companies to having my own thing. I don't think at this point in my career, I'm 34 now. So it's very different and it different in a lot of ways. I found things about myself that what I enjoyed it actually, you know, I don't regret any of the things I had done because I think it's an amazing experience to go into a big company and have the opportunities that I had. I will never go back, I don't think, unless I'm in a totally different role that's sort of created for me, which is like such a douchey thing to say. But like, I mean that as like, I don't fit well in a large company because I'm moving around a lot. I'm doing a lot of different things is what I like to do. You know, I like to design. And the reason I, honestly, the reason that we had started New England Outerwear, Dan and I met early in the morning. Timberland, you know, out of the 500 or so employees that were at the office, they offered anybody who wanted to to come down and learn pattern making before work you know you had to be at work at like 8 39 the class started at six out of all the employees 500 employees there was i think five or six of us who went just so happened dan was another one and he was in logistics and that side of the business and i was in design i never felt comfortable firing an email off to china and telling them how to design or create something without having been able to do it myself or having to be able to do it on my own and i quickly learned that it is extraordinarily challenging to make a shoe and pattern work and all of these things I sort of just dove into it and and it became an obsession for me. And coming from design school and always having had that background of having like a passion for product and then learning how it's made, you know, it's funny how whenever you look at like furniture or you look at anything, how anything's made, there's a reason why the show How It's Made was so popular because it's just like you can stare at it and you get obsessed with it. And I think I found out about myself that that's what I really loved, which is not always the focus in a bigger company. You're making things in a larger production sense to make money for a big company to keep the lights on and pay your bills and get the 401k and all of that shit, which is amazing. And there's a reason for that. And I loved it because I love drawing and I like coming up with ideas. And I have to say, out of my experience with bigger companies, my favorite experience was Timberland before they got bought by VF because there's a few designers there, you know, who are still there to this day. Um, one of them, this guy, Alex, is amazing. He was went to architecture school and just found himself in footwear and never left. They were really encouraging on having a little bit of blue sky thinking and being creative, allowing you to sort of figure things out on your own and really design something different. I miss that because I try and influence a bit of that into my own brand, but it's hard to do that when you're one day ordering toilet paper and the next day you stopping people from fighting and the next day ordering leather and then, you know, trying to sell shoes. So you kind of become a bit hardened to the creativity aspect, which I think strictly from a design perspective, if you're a person who really just wants to create things and design, going into a big company will allow you to have a safety net of like a good salary and will allow you to, to sort of experiment and explore, which is a lot of fun if it's a good experience. Now, my experience after that wasn't amazing 
you know, it loses its luster really quickly. The big paycheck is nice, but the day-to-day when you want to drive your car into the side of a fucking wall on your way to work, that kills it for you. For me, sitting in a cubicle every day just didn't do it. Now, I tried in a lot of ways to influence the rest of the company. You know, I had a lot of people that I worked with and a lot of people, a team that we worked together, and I started these design meetings at Clark's, and I also was presenting trend and all of that to like a team of 40 people, the design team in the UK and the US at one point, and... I'm good at that stuff and I like it. And my favorite part I realized about myself was I like teaching. I find it enjoyable to sort of share the things I know and then also learn from other people. And I think that was a big part for me is just sort of the sharing of information and and I am not the person that's going to hide any information as far as how to do things and where to go. Like if somebody has my email, fire me an email. If you ask me any question you want, I'm, I'm happy to share it. I think the more we know and the more resourceful we are as a culture with no matter what the topic is, the better we become at it. Like, would you, why would you stop someone from learning? Like, I don't give a shit if you're copying me. That's a good thing. Do it. If there's another hands-on factory, fucking do it. Let's have more. Let's be better at it. Like we're not good enough. I like that, that I can share things. And I like that at Clark's specifically where I was able to have that and have those times and have a lot of other designers that I got to work with and share those moments with. But at the same time, like, I don't know. I mean, there was an immense pressure to create things that sell. My boss wasn't amazing, honestly. She was pretty terrible, if I'm honest with you, um, to me and to a lot of people. <laughs> so that is a tough thing to deal with with management, honestly. She's still there, but I doubt she knows what Sishdown is because she doesn't give a shit. Ouch. No, no, no. I mean, it is like she doesn't give a shit about shoes. You would think that somebody who works in shoes would give a shit about a shoe podcast and shoe website. It's not about that for her. For her, it's about make something that we can sell and make money and make me look good. It's also such a different world you live in. So my biggest season, I put out 18 programs. Probably means nothing to anybody, but that's a lot. I mean, in 18 new toolings, 18 new outsoles, 18 new everything, which is a fucking lot of shoes. It sucked. And I was there very late nights. It was personally a, a drain on my personal life. But yeah, so so the, the one of the bigger differences, though, honestly, dude, is like we didn't open a program. We didn't open a tool referring to the actual metal tool that you pour hot fucking molten rubber, your 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 pads and whatever it's injected. Doesn't matter. There's so many constructions using those toolings, but it means that you've cut metal and you've milled out a tool for a brand new outsole that you're making. And that goes down to the blueprint. That shit I love. Like, I love that. I love working on blueprints. I love working on the technical aspect of things and moving things a millimeter that nobody would give a shit or notice about. A side note, I snuck a lot of penises into my outsoles. I'm not even kidding. It's my it's my mark, you know? If you look back at some of my shoes, you'll find a penis in there. I'm not, I'm, I'm, you think I'm joking. I'm serious. To the point where somebody, I made them a little bit too evident. I got yelled at. <laughs> Again, I'm not a good corporate guy. But... You won't open a dick tooling. You won't open a tooling, cut metal, unless there's a f- like 5,000 pair minimum like assumed on that. 5,000 to even 10,000. I had programs at Clark's that we would sell. I mean, I think my biggest program was hovering around 400, 500,000 pair. That is a significant amount of volume of shoes that you have to be able to sell and work on. It's so weird because you become like outside. It doesn't mean anything to you because these huge numbers. And then when you actually think about it, you're making that company millions and millions and millions of dollars. If I had 18 programs and at an average of 
50,000 pair, 30,000 pair, some upwards of a few hundred thousand. Think about the amount of volume you're giving to that company. It's weird where I'm out here with EasyMock and I'm like hustling, trying to just get the shop to 10,000 pairs this year itself outside of anything made in the US. And I'm like, fuck man, you know, 10,000 pairs is a lot, it's a lot of shoes, but we're getting there. We're almost there. You know, this year we'll be closer to six by year end, 6,000 pair for second year in business in a made in US factory. I think it's pretty good. I'm proud of that, but it didn't come with a lot of pain and struggle and toilet paper buying and, you know, me and my hands and knees doing a lot of fucking and cleaning and, and shit that you wouldn't want to do. So where I had to put down the pencil to draw, which I love to do, I had to pick up everywhere else. It's like the highest of the highs and the lowest of the lows, <laughs> you know? We're getting real and it's all real. <laughs> it is real, you know, especially when you have a family to support and you have things you want to do and financially you have responsibility, things you want to take care of. And those kind of things you don't you don't focus as much on when you're at a company that's paying you enough money for you to go out and fucking have beers whenever you want and oysters whenever you want. And it's a very different mindset, but it comes with its own stresses and baggage. You know, I miss beers and oysters, <laughs> but I think there's pros and cons. And for me, I have to be on this side of things because it's where I'm a happier person. I mean, what about you? I mean, I'm sure you've experienced a similar thing with what you're going through with, with Stitch Down, with you've talked to me about some bigger company things you deal with you're like i don't know I'll, maybe i'll go visit them and see like it's a balance you know sometimes the golden handcuffs that little dangle of the carrot is hard to ignore yeah the offers haven't exactly been flying in and the toilet paper is just here <laughs> i don't even know where it comes from i think we stocked up a lot in 2020 uh oh you were one of those people in fucking covid that that killed people for toilet paper <laughs> if it's on the shelf you just grab it but no man it's tough it's like look freedom is like the concept right You're like oh yeah you can do whatever you want and it turns out to not actually be the case but man let me tell you i was doing similar ish work not in shoes i tried to make it about shoes whenever i could and then that went away and i was like huh what do we do now <laughs> no shoes but like it still is the case right nobody can stop you except yourself and the forces around you you're not going to get slapped around by anybody which allows me to make a podcast like this with somebody like you i mean this is it and like you know you also have to deal with working from your home and all of a sudden there's construction next door for a very <laughs> long time and you have to tape all the podcasts at night that's why we're both having drinks right now which yes uh, you know we sprung for those small business ownership leads you to drinking yeah like there is still something beautiful about being able to do this all the shit be damned and clark's is huge timberland is huge your boss may not have been the best but i bet you whoever her boss was was similar like as you go up that chain it's tough and there are real demands and there are shareholders and quarterly reports and all this stuff that drives people to behave in certain ways a lot of people are extremely happy with their Clarks. A lot of people are extremely happy with their Timberlands. But once it becomes a passion for you, those products are clearly different than the things that you come to love. And just being able to work and be surrounded, however you know, frustrating or terrifying or whatever it might be on a given day, to just be thinking about the things that you love all day long and helping other people 
think about them or in your case, like actually creating them so people can wear them and be happy. Like, fuck, man, that's the high. That's the highest of highs. There's an extreme catharsis in that. And it's not something you can put a price on. It's cliche to say, but it's very rewarding to do it as much as all that extra stuff is tough to deal with. But that's also us. You know, I think we are this way. I am this way. And it's not to deter people. There are people who are meant for big businesses too. Some people just really excel in that environment. I personally do not. There are people who are meant to do that and can sit in that lane and they can fucking crush it. Look at some of the best designers in the world. If you're just talking about footwear, you know, you've got what, Sam Christian Tresser, you've got uh, Stephen Smith, these guys who are household names in footwear design, who had a whole career at massive companies like Reebok and Adidas and Nike. And there's a handful of them that you can list that just are still influential in their own right, are doing some really amazing, amazing things, but are doing it from the inside of a company and know how to work that and make it happen for them, which I find incredibly admirable, especially because I couldn't do it myself. I I, I say that because I don't think anybody listening, if there's somebody who would ever be interested in working for a company like that, I think it's always worth an experience. You know, my my parents told me never say no to anybody. Talk to everyone and hear everything out because you don't know someone's point of view and what the opportunity it can bring you. One thing leads to another. And if I would not be where I am sitting talking to you today had I not left Boston and gone up to Timberland and had that experience that pushed me into meeting people, these guys in Maine making shoes in a garage that were literally selling them on eBay. You got a free pattern making class at 6 a.m., but you got it. And they're like, yeah, come down. Who wants to come? And the whole company wasn't there, and you were smart enough to do it. Like Those kind of opportunities are very intriguing and can set people up to do whatever they want if they got the juice for what that thing is, right? That doesn't happen anywhere else except places with huge infrastructure and and departments that do those things with incredibly skilled people. You know, the core of pattern making is, I imagine, all kind of the same, right? What are the principles of this? Now apply it as you wish. That's pretty cool, man. You know, a lot of people who listen to this already have jobs at shoe companies and God bless you all. And a lot of people at least are kind of sitting there thinking about, huh, maybe what if... And there's some people that came into this whole thing just loving boots and shoes, and now they work at those places. And, like, I hugged one of them last week at their workplace. It was, like, emotional. It was like, shit, thank you for somehow making this happen for me, even though I was barely involved. That kind of spark is pretty cool. Passionate people, especially working at smaller brands, and maybe being able to have influence over larger kind of machines in a way, let's be honest, they're really good. There's a lot of forces involved there, but you know, at any kind of level, it's doing what you love to me and like why I love this. It's helping people, one, figure out what they might love and then two, being able to wear it and be happy. Shoes actually can make people happy constantly. You can't forget that they're on your feet unless you don't care. And if you do, you never forget. And the whole industry makes that possible at like at whatever level. Yeah, it's funny you say that because that was one thing early on in my career when I was at Timberland that I actually battled with internally. And it's like what I was doing there and what I, what we kind of do is a bit vain, right? 
we want to make like the coolest best make super nice boots and shoes and make you know you want to be the best thing ever and and, but then when you actually take a step back for me the reason why I've been able to balance that with myself is one I just really enjoy what I do but two like the first time you see your shoe that you created on someone's foot whether it's on the train or on the bus or on the street and they have no idea who the fuck you are but you spent like nine months of your life just pouring everything you had into that and then you see someone on it and they really like it because they see it and they're like I love this this and this about it you made someone else happy you made someone else feel good because when they put that shoe on they felt good about it and it's a really rewarding thing and I know it sounds cheesy to say but it really is like it's a cool thing to have I don't think a lot of people actually get the opportunity to have that direct connection with their work you know visually see I get to experience that when someone emails me or when I see someone wearing my shoes and you make them feel good, you make people feel like they look how they want to look and you make you become a part of their personality Well, you you help them figure out who they are and what they believe in. And that's what I think is super cool, because part of being in a community is having a community of individuals and everybody creates their own individual character of who they think they are and footwear and apparel and style and all that shit is part of it. And it doesn't have to always be so vain, you know? I think it's something nice that you're doing when it's not just about making money. It's about making someone feel good about themselves and have something they're proud of and they like, you know? When you create that for someone else, it's like, fuck, you feel good. You're like, ah, oh, damn, I did my job. That's what I'm setting out to do. And that's why I do what I do. If somebody listening on this podcast, if they buy a pair of my Easy Mocks and I send them to them, I want them to open up that box and, and feel me and everything we created and, and have that and feel good about themselves and be like, man, I fucking look good. This is awesome. That's why I'm doing this. And I think that you can do that wherever you are, whether it's in a small business or whether it's in a big business, you figure out your little channel and your avenue and how to get, how to get there. It's been a cool thing to see. And for me, it's always a, it's been an evolving experience every time. I mean, I'm lucky, man. I love what I do. I'm a very lucky person. So. Oh. Tangling, Greg. <laughs> I might be crying. <laughs> or just allergic to my dog, which is fine. But seriously, man, thank you for preaching all of that. Speaking about the kind of more specific, smaller business, used to be huge. Everybody should listen to the Full Grain podcast with our friend Phil Callis from Ashland Leather and Nick Horween. It's pretty good. They're like five episodes in. We might have them on sometime soon. But I was listening to one today where they were talking about all this supply chain stuff. And like Nick really, really helped break the whole thing down. I forget the numbers, honestly, that they were saying that used to exist in Maine. But it was like 15% of Maine's population in 1980 was in the footwear industry in some way or another. And that could have been tanning. It could have been hand sewns, whatever. Not the case today. And like I'm thrilled that you listened to that episode that we did a couple years ago talking about Maine, you're doing it up there. And not everybody's doing it anymore, but you are. What's the scene up there? I mean, is this like a bit of a comeback? Give me some good news here. Uh, I wish I could, actually. It's the opposite. (laughs) The real news is it's a struggle. There's really three manufacturers that do hand zones that are left. I mean, four-ish, you know. Obviously, you have Rancourt, you have Quaddy, you have us. And there are a few other smaller guys. You know, you had Mainsole for a little while, which was he had turned Highland into his own factory up there in Dexter. It's a much smaller operation currently as we sit. And that's kind of it. There's a few places here and there, but it's a bit dismal at the moment, to be honest, Ben. I'm having the hardest time finding employees. 
and people that want to actually sit and work and make shoes. The challenge is the same with every other industry right now coming out of COVID. There's a lot of jobs out there to be had. So the pool is quite large for people to become employed. And even places like Starbucks, you know, I say this all the time to people. I stop at a rest stop in Starbucks on my way up every time and they're offering 18, 19 bucks an hour plus benefits to pour a coffee and pop a breakfast sandwich in a microwave. It's a really tough thing to be able to compete with that in up in Lewiston. You've got the same thing with everybody else, whether it's FedEx or it's Dunkin' Donuts or it's everything. So the talent pool is very shallow. Unfortunately, the other part of it is, is the people that have these skills are dead. It's it's really sad. We're losing a lot of those people. You know, we still have some people in, the, in their middle age to a little bit older that can educate and teach, but finding someone that wants to learn that's younger is really, really hard. And the retention rate is extraordinarily low. (laughs) I've probably had about a dozen people in this year to train and I've retained one. So what is it? Well, for one, it's hard work. You know, you're on your feet all day, whether you're sewing or you're learning on a sewing machine or you're stitching and these operations are not easy. They take a bit to train to get up to a point. You know, my hand sewing is piecework. Everything else is hourly. I pay very competitively hourly from what I understand compared to the other guys in town. It's just not easy to find people that want to sit at a sewing machine or sit at a hand sewing bench and do it for 40 hours a week on end. Most people want to go to college and most people want to get a degree and get paid out of school $70,000 a year. And I guess I've been out of college for a while. but <laughs> Well, I know my first job out of college, uh, again... Timberland, I think I was making $36,000. You got me beat. Yeah. So, I mean, it's a vastly different landscape now, obviously due to inflation and everything else in the world. But like, how the hell do you compete with that? It's funny. I get these Facebook messages about people that are like, your shoes are so fucking expensive. This is bullshit. The most expensive slipper I've ever seen. First of all, it's not a slipper. Okay. It's a shoe that can be worn anywhere. It's got a rubber sole on it. Stop being a dickhead. Second of all, Do you understand what it's like to pay a wage, an American wage, and the amount I get hammered with taxes and payroll and literally everything else, and then the cost of just leather and rubber, it's exorbitant. My prices, I think I'm probably the cheapest out of all of the hand sewn. I don't know if anybody else doing a genuine hand sewn charges any less than I do. I really don't. If it is, that's on sale, or if it's a like only D to C random thing that like Rancor is trying out. But like generally speaking, I'm probably the cheapest as well, which is mind boggling to me that people push back because they don't obviously they just don't fully understand it. It's a challenge. And I'm really, really pushing and I've had this conversation, it's gotta be like three times a fucking week at this point. Like I don't want to put my prices above $300. I don't want to do it. I don't have a single product on my assortment that has a three in it. I will when I do boots because I just have to because boots are expensive, but I don't have boots in the line right now. There'll be some coming in the future. But even you know, the welted stuff is at two, going to be at 295 retail, which to me is a fucking incredible price for a, a welted shoe. And I'm doing that because I want everybody to get into a good shoe. I'm not doing it because I'm making money on this fucking thing. I need to make money, but... It's hard to be in business and people can't afford that. I am fully aware of that. I grew up a very middle-class average kid and my father would roll over and fucking scream if I ever said to him I wanted a pair of $265 shoes. You know what I mean? Like I was taking a fucking footlocker and I got the shoes on sale for 60 bucks, 50 bucks, and that was still expensive then. So I understand the plight that we have, but the unfortunate thing is the imbalance that we have with U.S. manufacturing, the challenges with hiring people that want to do it, and then also the price points. It's really, really hard 
for me, it's like leaning into who I am and who the story is and getting people to buy into the brand and understand, is this something you'll have for a long, long time? Again, I think it's probably a selfish thing of me. I want to carry the tradition on of making hand sewns in, in Maine because there's only a few of us left. I have no idea. I'm not privy to the information of Rancourt. I've met Mike and Kyle a handful of times. I don't know what their plan is ultimately. And Quaddy, you know, Kevin and Kirsten, and I think they're great people. I don't know ultimately what their plan is either. I have some inklings, but I don't know. But I am probably 30 years younger than both of them, Quaddy and Rancourt, and anybody else doing it. So I'm lucky, and I'm honestly in Kevin, the guy for up from Maine Soul, he tells me this all the time. He's like, I'm envious of your age. That's where I have an advantage. I have a lot of years to do this. I have a lot more of my career left in me, and part of that is maintaining what we have as far as footwear infrastructure in Maine. I just I find it something that is a point of pride for me. It's just a challenge, man. It's a stress, and I'm worried about it. I really am. <laughs> it's a daily stress that I have, <laughs> like with the small business thing. If anybody on here wants to move to Maine and come sew shoes, give me a call. I'm hiring. The thing is, you just got to hang out. You got to commit. That's the thing. Will they enjoy themselves? I think they will. You got to come out to the shop someday. Uh, we have a lot of fun in there. There's a lot of things that happen. We have a good time. And uh, there's never a dull moment. I'll put it that way. We, we're always laughing. Everyone's always laughing in the shop. Uh, I have the humor of a fucking five-year-old. So a fart joke and a dick joke go a long way for me. So <laughs> Yeah, yeah. Do, do the fart jokes and, uh, you know, you got to get like a foosball table. I think you can make your own career with it too. Yeah, like bad free snacks. Yeah, you know, startup environment that I came up in. I got a Keurig up there. Yeah, we got a refrigerator and a microwave, so you guys can do that. Dude, your phone's going to be ringing off the hook. Yeah, come on up. I got a shop with peeling lead paint. And um, <laughs> literally, this place is from the turn of the century. The Pepperell Mill is from like, I don't know, it's got to be 100 some odd years old. And it is a complete piece of shit. But it's home and it fits who we are and what we do and you can sort of feel the older brands that that preceded us there was a lot of other brands in this building and what's funny is my shop manager who's 87 by the way who works for me there is a pole next to the hand sewing bench that one of them i forget if it was peter or bill wrote their name in a note down for something on next to their hand sewing bench like legit 50 fucking years ago when they were working for i think it was sebago or sperry or one of the brands that was in this building and it's still on the pole from when they were in their like 20s working for the brand it's so cool it's one of my favorite things that we have in that shop that's just like a dumb mark on a pole but it, it kind of speaks to what that building represents. And uh, someday, if I'm ever a millionaire, I'll just take a bunch of money and dump it into that building and, and bring it back to life. But for now, it's a bunch of plywood and old rickety floors and peeling lead paint. <laughs> so come, please, come hang out, come work, come make shoes. I don't know, man. Everything you just described is beautiful to me, including the paint. And there aren't a lot of people who are feeling the commitment that you have to continuing something in Maine, in anywhere. A lot of it is like legacy stuff. Like you mentioned Mike and Kyle, you know, like the, that's where a lot of the continuation and the succession plan comes from. I mean, everybody should definitely go listen to the cobbler episode with Jim McFarland. It's like, yeah, that's how it used to work. Your parent is a cobbler and then you work for them and then you have kids and they work for you. And then everybody starts going to college, and then the cobbler shop shuts down, and that's it. 
you know, you've come from the outside in a lot of ways in terms of not having been born into some familial succession plan, but you're feeling the same thing. And I, you know, everybody listening to this feels the same way about the footwear, and that's what they want. They're frankly going all over the world to find it right now because that's where it's being made, and it's being made really good all over the world and small batches, and people are absolutely thrilled about it. But somebody has to want to make it for any of this to exist, you know, like at the level that we're talking about and and with the care and without the cost cutting that comes in when people don't care. Shout out Grand Stone, sponsor of this episode. They're making shoes in China and they are good, man. They are really good. And that's all they care about doing right now. They're in Xiamen, China. I've been there. Beautiful place. Amazing people. I've not been to the Grandstone factory, but uh, I was traveling there a lot for work when I went there. And that is a very cool shoe hub in Xiamen, the island of Xiamen. I mean, it's gorgeous. Dude, it's so cool to see that there are these, like you said, these little spots around the world doing some really amazing things. And yeah, it has to be a little bit of, well, a lot of bit of pride. For better or for worse, because sometimes it's just selfish, stupid pride. But I think it's a really cool thing that people care about that and are keeping it alive. It's why we do it, right? None of it makes any sense, like from a business perspective. And luckily, a lot of these people have not gone to any sort of business school. Um, <laughs> I haven't. I'll tell you that. <laughs> yeah, me neither. Uh, like they might realize better. Yeah, it's just this bullheadedness to say, no, 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 we're going to do it different. And it's going to work, hopefully. And if you do it right, people find out about it, like no matter where you're doing it or what the volume is. And the idea that it could be more meaningful to more people, like just great footwear that you really love and understand is kind of the goal of this whole thing for me. But it doesn't necessarily mean that it's going to get made unless people care on that side too, right? Yeah, yeah. And that's the trick. You drive demand... Well, then, yeah, there's opportunities for people to build businesses. Every step of the thing, from making the leather to making the fucking laces, which, I don't know, maybe laces aren't the best example. But there are terrible laces out there, too, you know? Like, who who cares about their laces? Shout out Jesse Garden Goods. Buy some laces from Thunderdome Sponsor. <laughs> I like Jesse. Um, so, I don't know, man. Just bully on you for doing it and you know i hope you keep creating the right environment that people want to find you know it's the work but it's about what you're surrounded by the people just the atmosphere and and the keurig of course like that's the clincher for pretty much everybody yeah it's an old keurig but it works <laughs> <laughs> it's a lead-based keurig and yeah. uh, everybody will be fine oh man just like keep it on up is my hope and my humble request to you I'm trying. I think it's a hard balance for sure, but that's the goal. I'm lucky and happy that we both are, that there is a community around us that sort of lifts us up to have the support to do that because, you know, not a lot of people do. And and I've been lucky that I've continued to have that throughout the last decade of my career. You know, I've had to go onto Reddit and explain myself a few different times and it's been a struggle, but it's nice that we have these people we can have these conversations with for better or for worse that give you that shared respect. And it's cool, man. We have a lot of really good guys that are after the same thing. And it's nice that you're here to bring a lot of us together because if not, we'd be stuck in our little holes and I'd be buried up in Maine with my Keurig making shoes alone. But um, yeah, it's cool. It's nice to have each other. Nice to have each other. All right. Let's end with some fun stuff. Three questions, Greg. 
your favorite shoe or boot or whatever of all time that you've made get really specific? That I've made? Well, I mean, that you were in, involved in, you know, a brand that you worked for, ran, whatever. I don't know if I, don't, I know this is such a cop out, but I don't know if I have one in specific. I guess, you know, it's going to be so lame to say, but I'm the most proud of Easy Mock because it is the culmination of everything I've done up until this point. The Easy Mock is a shoe that, like, I personally didn't even wear that much. I wore the buckle more than the lace. And for me, I'm so proud of it because it is honestly like all the knowledge that I've gained in the last, you know, decade and I'm still learning, I've put into that stupid little simple ass shoe that I'm making here in my shop. And I'd say, like, I'm the most proud. And that is my favorite because what it has become. And. It's something that I didn't expect to be such a force that it has, which is so cool. That's complete cop out. Moving on. Okay. <laughs> favorite all time that you've owned, but you didn't make? Well, my favorite of all time is in Alden Indie Boot, simply because I was born and raised about 25 minutes from that factory. And the minute I got into footwear and really understood what footwear is about, Alden to me is like the pinnacle of everything I've ever admired in a brand and in a company. One, it has a cool story, the fact that it's called an indie boot because of Indiana Jones and everything else. But the fact that it has this heritage, it's the oldest U.S. manufacturer. It's in the state I grew up in. And also, you know, shout out to Art for being such an amazing guy. Like when I first started in this industry, he picked up the phone and he talked to me. I was a fucking nobody and I still am a nobody. But that dude who ran this incredible brand took time out of his day to answer a question, to just talk to me. Like, I'm such an asshole. I picked up the phone and I got his number from a friend and he took the time out of his day, the CEO of Halton. And like, I have so much respect for that. And for me, I've learned from that. Like, I want to do that. So to me, that true balance lasts. It fits right. It's the most gorgeous boot of all time, in my opinion. People differ between the tanker and other shit. But to me, that's the money. Yeah, Indie Boot is another cop-out it's a total cop-out but i have a connection to it you know i know it's a cop-out but i grew up near that factory i didn't i wasn't in footwear my whole life i never grew up near footwear i didn't do that shit and they're there so whatever it's a cop-out what do you want me to say like a i can tell you a sneaker that i really like that i have but it's not going to mean anything to anybody <laughs> no, no, indie boot is like the ultimate perfect cop-out for everybody if everybody of course it's the perfect boot if i'm choosing one shoe one boot, one thing that's going to last me for the rest of my life. It's like Budweiser. The first beer I ever had was Budweiser and fuck the IPAs and all that other cool guy shit. The last beer I'll probably ever have will be Budweiser because it's tried and true and it is what it is. There's no frills. I feel the same way about Alden. Wasn't the first boot I ever wore because I didn't have the money, but it's the best first boot you'll ever have and it will last you forever. My first beer is Colt 45. Works every time. Classic because you're a Midwestern sicko. You're a dirty boy. <laughs> I'm from Long Island. <laughs> I know. <laughs> Best five years of my life in Wisconsin. Uh, All right. Last one. Last one. Okay. Okay. Shoe or boot of all time that you have not owned nor made, but just have a ton of fucking respect for. Wow. That's a tough one. There's a lot. There's a lot of shoes that I've not owned that I really admire. I've never come around to getting a Vibrig. I don't own a single Vibrig shoe. And I've always loved what Brett and his dad have done. I think I just respect the hell out of those guys. And I've always loved those. You know, if I'm spending anywhere from six to $800 on a pair of boots, I have to be loyal to Alden or some of the other guys that I 
no, but that would be high on my list. Um, if you want a niche weird answer, Lone Wolf boots in Japan, there was something about that stupid lace to toe boot. I don't know what it was like, like Sugarcane and Lone Wolf and that sort of that whole thing of the real McCoys has this true heritage draw for me that I just respect the fuck out of people that do repro shit and then do it better than the original. I don't even know where you could get a Lone Wolf boot. I don't know if Sugarcane is still around. I haven't been in touch with that part of the Currently, industry. They're not manufacturing it. McCoy's isn't making their boots right now. So what are they doing? Anything right now? In terms of footwear? Like, not really. I mean, this might be my answer. The McCoy's monkey boot. Black horse butt. That's what I wanted. I mean, it's perfect. That's what I mean. The lace-to-toe monkey boot to me is a... That fucking thing is insane. For me, that's it. Those are the two. I'd say just for two different reasons. So you said so you'd be monkey boot. I mean, in term, in terms of boot, yeah, it would actually... It would be that. I had a conversation earlier today with somebody about that being the greatest boot ever, and they brought it up first. In terms of shoes, Jam, Weston, Shas, The Hunt. Like, absolutely crazy Norwegian well... Just a absolute beautiful old man brick of a shoe. It's it's like a twenty two hundred dollar ready to wear shoe. It comes as close to living up to it as anything at that price ever could. I've tried them on before. They're fucking incredible. I know, I know. I've been. I went. You go into the Jam Weston store in New York, and you just feel like a complete piece of shit. Or at least I do, because I just don't. They closed, man. Did they really? Yeah. That's sad. They closed in like January 2020. Like it wasn't even a pandemic excuse. I love the guys that were in there, man. Bob was a man. Yeah, as far as shoes, I mean, I'd go for a very typical, like a John Lobb or an Edward Green, something in that bespoke British realm, because I think there is something there that's uniquely them and really crazy high-end feeling at the same time being ready to wear and you know i don't ever get dressed up but i feel like a king when i do you know and i feel like if i put on a thousand dollar two thousand dollar pair of john lobs i'd probably i don't even know what i'd do i do a little tap dance and high five some people you know it's fun that's what i'm saying it's a bit of a cop-out because i have so many things that i want you know and like they range from like a russell bird shooter which i've never owned dude Russells are fantastic. New ownership, we actually have a story, might be out by the time this episode's out, with the new owners who really seem to have their head screwed on completely right in the way that we just discussed previously. But yeah, man, my Russells and like no knock on Easy Mocks, all in true balance, anything, most comfortable boots I've ever worn by far. They're unbelievable. I got you sold me. I got to buy a pair. I've wanted them forever. The Triple Vim construction is unique to them. It's super cool. But anyway, I would love a pair of those. I'm still sticking with my answer, though. All right. I'm going the monkey boot, lace to toe, lone wolf, sugarcane situation as a grailed. If I got that, I probably wouldn't even wear them. I'd put them in a case and just stare at them. And then just because it is what it is and I have to because it's near and dear to my heart, I'm still sticking with the indie boot. Fuck you for calling it a cop out. I love that goddamn boot. (laughs) It's the best cop out there is. (laughs) So that's it. That's it. Those are my answers. Done. This is great. We gotta call it, man. We gotta call it. This is your your guy's gonna have so much editing. Um, honestly, thank you. I'm so happy to be on here. I appreciate it. You and I need to get together in person and have a couple of beers. And um, thank you, man. I really appreciate the support, Greg. This was it. This one really hit for me. Huge thanks to Grant Stone for sponsoring this episode and just making fantastic shoes and boots the right way as previously mentioned follow them on instagram at grant stone and also their new account at grant stone ladies 
Keep it up, guys. Come join the Discord. Stitch down Discord. I dare you. We're going to be doing some serious stuff together in a way that was also alluded to earlier in the episode over the next year. I can assure you of that. More info on stitchdown.com. And Greg, man, thanks. Thanks for just being the most interesting guest imaginable. So glad we did this, man. (laughs) I doubt it, but thank you. Sure. Anytime. I appreciate it. All right. That's it for this week. Take care of your shoes. We'll see you next time. (laughs) 